0: Bree, Olivia Wachowski, Michelle Anderson, Dave and Steph Brake, Sybil Colvin, Sid S., and Gail Cathell. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for those of you who don't know, all of the names that I just read are brand new patrons um, of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com which is a really great site where you can go on and support creators of work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast helps you sleep, maybe consider going to patreon.com slash radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And uh, at $5 a month, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you poetry readings twice a month just for donating that are exclusive to Patreon donors so if you want to be a part of making this show go to patreon.com slash radio and as soon as you donate I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show thank you and as always the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Levkowski and the cover of her sleepy is by Grace Kanan tonight's a book um, that was recommended by a friend Uh, I'm reading it as I'm leaving New York City for the last time for a long time. I don't know when I'll be back, Um, but I'm officially on this crazy cross-country trip that I've been talking about uh, for a while now with the Sleepy Podcast, and um, it's really weird to be kind of on the precipice, and I don't know, it's a really crazy, liberating kind of freedom, it's exciting, and terrifying, and happy, and sad, and all that, anyways, if you'd like to keep up with the Sleepy Podcast, as uh, I make my way across the country, <laughs> making radio, and exploring, um, you can follow me on Instagram, at Sleepy underscore podcast, that's probably going to be the best way to keep up with the trip, see where I am, could be recording from a desert in new mexico or up in the woods in washington or montana who knows so that's uh at sleepy underscore podcast on instagram anyways tonight i'm reading a book called cold comfort farm by stella gibbons and uh I listened to the other podcast, um, Nothing Much Happens, and I really like uh, her voice. Obviously, I can't really go to sleep to my own voice, so I have used her podcast. And I like how she she reads you a story and then repeats it a second time. So I think I'm going to try to do that tonight. I would love to know what you guys think. So, tonight, before we hit the road and head south. I'm reading Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. Now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Education bestowed on flora Post by her parents had been expensive, athletic and prolonged and when they died within a few weeks of one another during the annual epidemic of the influenza or Spanish plague which occurred in her 20th year she was discovered to possess every art and grace save that of earning her own living. Her father had always been spoken of as a wealthy man but on his death his executors were disconcerted to find him a poor one. After death, duties had been paid, and the demands of creditors satisfied. His child was left with an income of one hundred pounds a year, and no property. Flora inherited, however, from her father a strong will, and from her mother a slender ankle. The one had not been impaired by always having her own way, nor the other by the violent athletic sports in which she had been compelled to take part. But she realized that neither was adequate as an equipment for earning her keep. She decided, therefore, to stay with a friend, a Mrs. Smiling, at her house in Lambeth until she could decide where to bestow herself and her hundred pounds a year. The death of her parents did not cause Flora much grief for she had barely known them. They were addicted to travel and spent only a month or so each year in England. Flora, for her tenth year, had passed her school holidays at the house of Mrs. Smiling's mother. When Mrs. Smiling married, Flora spent them at her friend's house instead. It was therefore with the feelings of one who returns home that she entered the precincts of Lambeth, upon a gloomy afternoon in February, a fortnight after her father's funeral. Mrs. Smiling was fortunate in that she had inherited house property in Lambeth before the rents in that district soared to ludicrous heights following the tide of fashion as it swung away from Mayfair to the other side of the river and the stone parapets bordering the Thames became, as a consequence, the sauntering ground of Argentinian women and their bull terriers. Her husband, she was a widow, had owned three houses in Lambeth, which she had bequeathed to her. One, in Mouse Place, was the pleasantest of the three, and faced with its shell fanlight the changing Thames. Here Miss Smiling lived, while of the other two, one had been pulled down and a garage perpetrated upon its site and the third, which was too small and inconvenient for any other purpose, had been made into the old diplomacy club. The white porcelain geraniums, which hung in baskets from the little iron balconies of Von Mouse Place, did much to cheer Flora's spirits as her taxi stopped before its door. Turning from the taxi to the house, she saw that the door had already been opened, by Mrs. Smiling's butler, Sneller, who was looking down upon her with dim approval. He was, she reflected, almost rudely like a tortoise, and she was glad her friend kept none as pets or they might have suspected mockery. Mrs. Smiling was awaiting her in the drawing room overlooking the river. She was a small Irish woman of twenty-six years, with a fair complexion, large gray eyes, and a little crooked nose, she had two interests in life. One was the imposing of reason and moderation into the bosoms of some fifteen gentlemen of birth and fortune who were madly in love with her, and who had flown to such remote places as the Johnson Law, Lake Maluba Maluba, and the Quanhens because of her refusal to marry them. She wrote to them all once a week, and they, as her friends knew, to their cost, for she was forever reading loud, long, boring bits from their letters, wrote to her. These gentlemen, because of the hard work they did in savage foreign parts and of their devotion to Mrs. Smiley, were known collectively as Mary's Pioneers O, a quotation from the spirited poem by Walt Whitman. Mrs. Smiling's second interest was her collection of brasseries and her search for a perfect one. She was reputed to have the largest and finest collection of these garments in the world. It was hoped that on her death it would be left to the nation. She was an authority on the cut, fit, color, construction and proper functioning of brasseries and her friends had learned that her interest even in moments of extreme emotional or physical distress, could be aroused and her composure restored by the hasty utterance of the phrase, I saw a brasserie today, Mary, that would have interested you. Mrs. Smiling's character was firm and her taste civilized. Her method of dealing with wayward human nature, when it insisted on obtruding its grossness upon her scheme of life, was short ineffective she pretended things were not so and usually after a time they were not Christian Science is perhaps a larger organization but seldom so successful of course if you encourage people to think they're messy they will be messy was one of Mrs. Smiling's favorite maxims another was nonsense Flora you imagine things. Yet Mrs. Smiling herself was not without the softer graces of imagination. Well, darling, said Mrs. Smiling, and Flora, who was tall, bent and kissed her cheek. Will you have tea or a cocktail? Flora said that she would have tea. She folded her gloves and put her coat over the back of a chair and took the tea and a cinnamon wafer was the funeral awful inquired Mrs. Smiley she knew that Mr. Post that large man who had been serious about games and contemptuous of the arts was not regretted by his child nor was Mrs. Post who would wish people to live beautiful lives and yet be ladies and gentlemen Flora replied that it had been horrid she added that she was bound to say all the older relatives seem to have enjoyed it, no end. Did any of them ask you to go and live with them? I meant to warn you about that. Relatives are always wanting you to go and live with them, said Mrs. Smiling. No. Remember, Mary, I have only a hundred pounds a year now, and I cannot play bridge. Bridge? What is that? Inquired Mrs. Smiley, glancing vaguely out of the window at the river. What curious ways people have of passing their time, to be sure. I think you are very fortunate, darling, to have got through all those dreadful years at school and college where you had to play all those games without getting to like them yourself. How did you manage it? Flora considered. Well, first of all, I used to stand quite still and stare at the trees and not think about anything. There were usually some trees about, for most games, you know, are played in the open air. And even in the winter, the trees are still there. But I found that people would bump into me, so I had to give up standing still and run like the others. I always ran after the ball because, after all, Mary, the ball is important in a game, isn't it? Until I found they didn't like me doing that because I never got near it or hit it or did whatever you are supposed to do to it. So then I ran away from it instead. But they didn't seem to like that either because apparently people in the audience wondered what I was doing out on the edge of a field all by myself. And running away from the ball whenever I saw it coming near me. And then a whole lot of them got at me one day after one of the games was over and told me I was no good. And the game's mistress seemed quite worried and asked me if I really didn't care about lacrosse. That was the name of the game. And I said no. I was afraid I didn't, really. And she said it was a pity. Because my father was so keen. And what did I care about? So I said, Well, I was not quite sure. But on the whole, I thought I liked having everything very tidy and calm all around me. And not being bothered to do things. And laughing at the kind of joke other people didn't think at all funny. And going for country walks. And not being asked to express opinions about things like love and isn't it so-and-so peculiar. So then she said, Oh, wow, well, didn't think I could try to be a little less slack because of father. I said, No, I was afraid I couldn't. And after that she left me alone. But all the others still said that was no good. Mrs. a smiling nodded her approval, but she told Flora that she talked too much. She added, Now Beth is going to live with someone. Of course, you can stay here as long as you like, darling, but I suppose you'll want to take up some kind of work sometime, won't you? And earn enough to have a flat of your own. What kind of work? Asked Flora, sitting upright and graceful in her chair. Well, organizing work. Like I used to. For Mrs. Smiling had been an organizer for the LCC before she married Diamond, Todd Smiling, the racketeer. Do not ask me what that is exactly, for I've forgotten. It is so long since I did any. But I'm sure you could do it. Or you might do journalism, or bookkeeping, or beekeeping. Flora shook her head. I'm afraid I couldn't do any of those things, Mary. Well, what then, darling? Now, Flora, don't be feeble. You know perfectly well that you'll be miserable if you haven't got a job when all your friends have. Besides, a hundred pounds a year won't even keep you in stockings and fans. What will you live on? My relatives, replied Flora. Mrs. Smiling gave her a shocked glance of inquiry, or, though civilized in her taste, she was a strong-minded and moral woman. "'Yes, Mary,' repeated Flora firmly, "'I am only nineteen, but I have already observed that. "'Whereas there still lingers some absurd prejudice "'against living on one's friends, "'no limits are set, "'either by society or by one's own conscience.' To the amount one may impose upon one's relatives. Now I am peculiarly, I think, if you could see some of them, you would agree that that is the word, rich in relatives on both sides of the family. There's a bachelor cousin of father's in Scotland. There's a sister of mother's in Worthing. As though that were not enough, she breeds dogs. A female cousin of mothers lives in Kensington, and there are also some distant cousins. Connections of mothers, I believe, who live in Sussex. Sussex, muse Mrs. Smiley. I don't much like the sound of that. Do they live on a decaying farm? I'm afraid they do, confessed Flora reluctantly. However, I need not try them unless everything else fails. I propose to send a letter to the relatives I have mentioned, explaining the situation and asking them if they are willing to give me a home in exchange for my beautiful eyes and a hundred pounds a year. Flora, how insane, cried Mrs. Smiley. You must be mad. Why, you would die after the first week. You know that neither of us have ever been able to abide relatives you must stay here with me and learn typing and shorthand. And then you can be somebody's secretary and have a nice little flat of your own. And we can have lovely parties. Mary, you know I hate parties. My idea of hell is a very large party in a cold room where everybody has to play hockey properly. But you put me off what I was going to say. When I found a relative who was willing to have me I shall take him or her in hand, and alter his or her character and mode of living to suit my own taste. Then, when it pleases me, I shall marry. Who, pray? Demanded Mrs. Smiley rudely. She was much perturbed. Somebody whom I shall choose. I have definite ideas about marriage, as you know. I have always liked the sound of the phrase, "A marriage has been arranged." And so it should be arranged. This is the most important step a mortal creature can take. I prefer the idea of arrangement to that other statement that marriages are made in heaven. My marriage, Mary, will be arranged into heaven. Mrs. Smiling shuddered at the compelling, the almost gallic cynicism of Flora's speech, for Mrs. Smiling believed that marriages should arise naturally from the union of two loving natures and that they should take place in churches with all the usual paraphernalia and hugaboo. And so had her own marriage arisen and been celebrated. But what I wanted to ask you was this, continued Flora. Do you think a circular letter to all these relatives would be a good idea? Would it impress them with my efficiency? no returned Mrs. Smiling coldly I do not think it would it would be too off-putting you must write to them of course making an entirely different letter each time Flora explaining the situation that is if you really are going to be so insane as to go on with the idea don't fuss Mary I will write the letters tomorrow before lunch I will write them tonight I think we ought to die now, don't you? To celebrate the inauguration of my career as a parasite. I have ten pounds and I will take you to the new river club. Angelic place. Don't be silly. You know perfectly well we must have some men. Then you can find them. Are there any pioneers Oh, home on leave? Mrs. Smiling's face assumed that brooding and maternal look which was associated in the minds of her friends with thoughts of Pioneer's O. Vicky is, she said. All the Pioneer's oh had short, brusque nicknames, rather like the cries of strange animals, but this was quite natural, for they all came from places full of strange animals. And your second cousin, Charles Fairford, is in town, continued Miss Smiling, the tall, serious, dark one, he will do, said Flora with approval. He has such a funny little nose. Accordingly, about twenty minutes to nine that night, Mrs. Smiling's car drove away from the mouse place, carrying herself and Flora in white dresses with absurd little wreaths of flowers at the side of their heads. And opposite that sat Bicky and Charles, and Flora had only met a dozen times before. Bicky, who had a shocking stammer, talked a great deal, as people with stammers always loved to do. He was plain and 30-ish and home on leave from Kenya. He pleased them by corroborating all the awful rumors they had heard about the place. Charles, who looked well in tall, spoke hardly at all. Occasionally he gave a loud, deep musical ha-ha, but amused at anything. He was 23. It was to be a parson. He stared out of the window most of the time and hardly looked at Flora. I don't think Sneller approves of this excursion, observed Mrs. Smiling as they drove away. He looked all dim and concerned. Did you notice? He approves of me because I look serious, said Flora. A straight noise is a great help if one wishes to look serious. I do not wish to look serious, said Mrs. Smiley, coldly. There will be time enough to do that. I have to come and rescue you from some impossible relations living in some ungettable place because you can't bear it any longer. Have you told Charles about it? Good heavens, no. Charles is a relation. He might think I wanted to go live with him and Cousin Helen in Hertfordshire. I was angling for an invitation. Well, you could if you liked, said Charles, turning from his study of the glittering street gliding past the windows. There's a swing in the garden and tobacco flowers in the summer, and probably Mother and I would quite like it if you did. Don't be silly, said Mrs. Smiling. Look, here we are. Did you get a table near the river, Becky? Becky had managed to do that. And when they were seated, facing the flowers and lights on their table, they could look down through the glass floor at the moving river and watch it between their slippers as they danced. Through the glass walls, they could see the barges going past, bearing their romantic red and green lights. Outside it had begun to rain, and the glass roof was soon trickling with silver. In the course of supper, Flora told Charles of her plan. He was silent at first, and she thought he was shocked. For though Charles had not a straight nose, it might have been written of him, as Shelley wrote of himself in the preface to Julian and Julian is rather serious. But at last, he said, Looking amused. Well, if you get very sick of it, wherever you are, phone me and I'll come and rescue you in my plane. Have you a plane, Charles? I don't think an embryo a parson should have a plane. What breed is it? A twin Belisha bat. Its name is Speed Cop, too. But really, Charles, do you think a parson ought to have a plane? continued Flora who was in a foolish mood what has that to do with it said Charles calmly anyway you let me know and I'll come along Flora promised that she would for she liked Charles and then they danced together and all four sat a long time over coffee and then it was three o'clock and they thought it time to go home Charles put Flora into her green coat, and Bicky put Mrs. Smiling into her black one. And soon, they were driving home through the rainy streets of Lambeth, where every house had windows alight with rose, orange or gold, behind which parties were going on, card or musical or merely frivolous, and a lit shop window displayed a single frock or a tang horse to the rain. There's the old diplomacy, said Mrs. Smiling, interestedly, as they passed that ludicrous box, with baskets of metal flowers tipping off the narrow sills of its windows and music coming from its upper rooms. How glad I am that poor Todd left it to me. It does bring in such a lot of money. For Mrs. Smiling, like all people who have been disagreeably poor and have become deliciously rich, had never grown used to her money and was always mentally turning it over in her hands and positively reveling in the thought of what a lot she had. And this delighted all of her friends who looked on with approval just as they would have looked upon a nice child with a toy. Charles and Bicky said goodnight at the door because Mrs. Smiling was too afraid of Sneller to ask them in for a last cocktail And Flora muttered that it was absurd. But all the same, she felt rather subdued as the two wandered to bed up the narrow black carpeted staircase. Tomorrow I'll write my letter, said Flora, yawning with one hand on the slender white baluster. Good night, Mary. Mrs. Smiling said, Good night, darling. She added that tomorrow, Flora would have thought better of it. The education bestowed on Flora Post by her parents had been expensive, athletic, and prolonged. And when they died within a few weeks of one another during the annual epidemic of the influenza or Spanish plague which occurred in her 20th year, she was discovered to possess every art and grace save that of earning her own living. Her father had always been spoken of as a wealthy man, but on his death, his executors were disconcerted to find him a poor one. After death, duties had been paid, and the demands of creditors satisfied. His child was left with an income of one hundred pounds a year, and no property. Flora inherited, however, from her father a strong will, and from her mother a slender ankle. The one had not been impaired by always having her own way, nor the other by the violent athletic sports in which she had been compelled to take part. But she realized that neither was adequate as an equipment for earning her keep. She decided, therefore, to stay with a friend, a Mrs. Smiley, at her house in Lambeth until she could decide where to bestow herself and her hundred pounds a year. The death of her parents did not cause Flora much grief for she had barely known them. They were addicted to travel and spent only a month or so each year in England. Flora, for her tenth year, had passed her school holidays at the house of Mrs. Smiling's mother and when Mrs. Smiling married, Flora spent them at her friend's house instead. It was therefore with the feelings of one who returns home that she entered the precincts of Lambeth upon a gloomy afternoon in February, a fortnight after her father's funeral. Mrs. Smiling was fortunate in that she had inherited house property in Lambeth before the rents in that district soared to ludicrous heights following the tide of fashion as it swung away from Mayfair to the other side of the river and the stone parapets bordering the Thames became... As a consequence, the sauntering ground of Argentinian women and their bull terriers. Her husband, she was a widow, had owned three houses in Lambeth, which she had bequeathed to her. One in Mouse Place was the pleasantest of the three, and faced with its shell fanlight the changing Thames. Here Miss Smiling lived, while of the other two, one had been pulled down and a garage perpetrated upon its site, and the third, which was too small and inconvenient for any other purpose, had been made into the old diplomacy club. The white porcelain geraniums, which hung in baskets from the little iron balconies of one Mouth place, did much to cheer Flora's spirits as her taxi stopped before its door. Turning from the taxi to the house, she saw that the door had already been opened by Mrs. Smiling's butler, Sneller, who was looking down upon her with dim approval. He was, she reflected, almost rudely like a tortoise, and she was glad her friend kept none as pets, or they might have suspected mockery. Mrs. Smiling was awaiting her in the drawing room, overlooking the river. She was a small Irish woman of twenty-six years, with a fair complexion, large grey eyes, and a little crooked nose. She had two interests in life. One was the imposing of reason and moderation into the bosoms of some fifteen gentlemen of birth and fortune who were madly in love with her, and who had flown to such remote places as the John Song La, Lake Maluba Maluba, and the Quon because of her refusal to marry them. She wrote to them all once a week, and they, as her friends knew to their cost, for she was forever reading loud, long, boring bits from their letters, wrote to her. These gentlemen, because of the hard work they did in savage foreign parts, and of their devotion to Mrs. Smiley, were known collectively as Mary's Pioneer's O, a quotation from the spirited poem by Walt Whitman. Mrs. Smiling's second interest was her collection of brasseries and her search for a perfect one. She was reputed to have the largest and finest collection of these garments in the world. It was hoped that on her death it would be left to the nation. She was an authority on the cut, fit, color, construction and proper functioning of brasseries and her friends had learned that her interest even in moments of extreme emotional or physical distress, could be aroused and her composure restored by the hasty utterance of the phrase, I saw a brasserie today, Mary, that would have interested you. Mrs. Smiling's character was firm and her taste civilized. Her method of dealing with wayward human nature, when it insisted on obtruding its grossness upon her scheme of life, was short ineffective, she pretended things were not so, and usually, after a time, they were not. Christian Science is perhaps a larger organization, but seldom so successful. Of course, if you encourage people to think they're messy, they will be messy, was one of Mrs. Smiling's favorite maxims. Another was, nonsense, Flora. You imagine things. Yet Mrs. Smiling herself was not without the softer graces of imagination. Well, darling, said Mrs. Smiling, and Flora, who was tall, bent and kissed her cheek. Will you have tea or a cocktail? Flora said that she would have tea. She folded her gloves and put her coat over the back of a chair and took the tea. And a cinnamon wafer Was the funeral awful Inquired Mrs. Smiley She knew that Mr. Post That large man Who had been serious about games And contemptuous of the arts Was not regretted by his child Nor was Mrs. Post Who would wish people to live Beautiful lives And yet be ladies and gentlemen Flora replied That it had been horrid She added that she was bound to say all the older relatives seem to have enjoyed it, no end. Did any of them ask you to go and live with them? I meant to warn you about that. Relatives are always wanting you to go and live with them, said Mrs. Smiling. No. Remember, Mary, I have only a hundred pounds a year now, and I cannot play bridge. Bridge? What is that? Inquired Mrs. Smiley, glancing vaguely out of the window at the river. What curious ways people have of passing their time, to be sure. I think you are very fortunate, darling, to have got through all those dreadful years at school and college where you had to play all those games without getting to like them yourself. How did you manage it? Flora considered. Well, first of all, I used to stand quite still and stare at the trees and not think about anything. There were usually some trees about, for most games, you know, are played in the open air. And even in the winter, the trees are still there. But I found that people would bump into me, so I had to give up standing still and run like the others. I always ran after the ball because, after all, Mary, the ball is important in a game, isn't it? Until I found they didn't like me doing that, because I never got near it, or hit it, or did whatever you are supposed to do to it. So then I ran away from it instead. But they didn't seem to like that either, because apparently people in the audience wondered what I was doing out on the edge of a field, all by myself and running away from the ball whenever I saw it coming near me. And then a whole lot of them got at me one day, after one of the games was over, and told me I was no good. And the game's mistress seemed quite worried, and asked me if I really didn't care about lacrosse. That was the name of the game. And I said no. I was afraid I didn't, really. And she said it was a pity because my father was so keen. And what did I care about? So I said, well, I was not quite sure. But on the whole, I thought I liked having everything very tidy and calm all around me and not being bothered to do things and laughing at the kind of joke other people didn't think at all funny and going for country walks and not being asked to express opinions. About things, like love, and isn't it so and so peculiar? So then she said, "Oh well." Didn't think I could try to be a little less slack, because of father. I said no. I was afraid I couldn't. And after that, she left me alone. But all the others still said, that was no good." Mrs. Smiling nodded her approval but she told Flora that she talked too much. She added, Now Beth is going to live with someone. Of course, you can stay here as long as you like, darling, but I suppose you'll want to take up some kind of work sometime, won't you? And earn enough to have a flat of your own. What kind of work? Asked Flora, sitting upright and graceful in her chair. Well, organizing work like I used to for Mrs. Smiley had been an organizer for the LCC before she married Diamond Todd Smiley the racketeer do not ask me what that is exactly for I've forgotten it is so long since I did any but I'm sure you could do it or you might do journalism or bookkeeping or beekeeping Flora shook her head I'm afraid I couldn't do any of those things, Mary. Well, what then, darling? Now, Flora, don't be feeble. You know perfectly well that you'll be miserable if you haven't got a job when all your friends have. Besides, a hundred pounds a year won't even keep you in stockings and fans. What will you live on? My relatives, replied Flora. Mrs. Smiling gave her a shocked glance of inquiry, or, though civilized in her taste, she was a strong-minded and moral woman. "'Yes, Mary,' repeated Flora firmly, "'I am only nineteen, but I have already observed that. "'Whereas there still lingers some absurd prejudice "'against living on one's friends, "'no limits are set, "'either by society or by one's own conscience.' To the amount one may impose upon one's relatives. Now I am peculiarly—I think—if you could see some of them, you would agree that that is the word, rich in relatives, on both sides of the family. There's a bachelor cousin of father's in Scotland. There's a sister of mother's in Worthing. As though that were not enough, she breeds dogs. A female cousin of mothers lives in Kensington, and there are also some distant cousins. Connections of mothers, I believe, who live in Sussex. Sussex, muse Mrs. Smiley. I don't much like the sound of that. Do they live on a decaying farm? I'm afraid they do, confessed Flora reluctantly. However, I need not try them unless everything else fails. I propose to send a letter to the relatives I have mentioned, explaining the situation and asking them if they are willing to give me a home in exchange for my beautiful eyes and a hundred pounds a year. Flora, how insane, cried Mrs. Smiley. You must be mad. Why, you would die after the first week. You know that neither of us have ever been able to abide relatives you must stay here with me and learn typing and shorthand. And then you can be somebody's secretary and have a nice little flat of your own. And we can have lovely parties. Mary, you know I hate parties. My idea of hell is a very large party in a cold room where everybody has to play hockey properly. But you put me off what I was going to say. When I found a relative who was willing to have me I shall take him or her in hand and alter his or her character and mode of living to suit my own taste. Then, when it pleases me, I shall marry. Who, pray? demanded Mrs. Smiling, rudely. She was much perturbed. Somebody whom I shall choose. I have definite ideas about marriage, as you know. I've always liked the sound of the phrase, a marriage has been arranged. And so it should be arranged. This is the most important step a mortal creature can take. I prefer the idea of arrangement to that other statement that marriages are made in heaven. My marriage, Mary, will be arranged into heaven. Mrs. Smiling shuddered at the compelling, the almost gallic cynicism of Flora's speech, for Mrs. Smiling believed that marriages should arise naturally from the union of two loving natures, and that they should take place in churches, with all the usual paraphernalia and hugaboo. And so had her own marriage arisen and been celebrated. But what I wanted to ask you was this, continued Flora. Do you think a circular letter to all these relatives would be a good idea? Would it impress them with my efficiency? no returned Mrs. Smiling coldly I do not think it would it would be too off-putting you must write to them of course making an entirely different letter each time Flora explaining the situation that is if you really are going to be so insane as to go on with the idea don't fuss Mary I will write the letters tomorrow before lunch I will write them tonight I think we ought to die now, don't you? To celebrate the inauguration of my career as a parasite. I have ten pounds and I will take you to the new river club. Angelic place. Don't be silly. You know perfectly well we must have some men. Then you can find them. Are there any pioneers Oh, home on leave? Mrs. Smiling's face assumed that brooding and maternal look which was associated in the minds of her friends with thoughts of Pioneer's O. Vicky is, she said. All the Pioneer's O had short, brusque nicknames, rather like the cries of strange animals, but this was quite natural, for they all came from places full of strange animals. And your second cousin, Charles Fairford, is in town, continued Miss Smiling, the tall, serious, dark one, he will do, said Flora with approval. He has such a funny little nose. Accordingly, about twenty minutes to nine that night, Mrs. Smiling's car drove away from the mouse place, carrying herself and Flora in white dresses with absurd little wreaths of flowers at the side of their heads, and opposite that sat Bicky and Charles, and Flora had only met a dozen times before. Bicky, who had a shocking stammer, talked a great deal, as people with stammers always loved to do. He was plain and 30-ish and home on leave from Kenya. He pleased them by corroborating all the awful rumors they had heard about the place. Charles, who looked well in tail, spoke hardly at all. Occasionally he gave a loud, deep musical ha-ha, but amused at anything. He was 23. It was to be a parson. He stared out of the window most of the time and hardly looked at Flora. I don't think Sneller approves of this excursion, observed Mrs. Smiling as they drove away. He looked all dim and concerned. Did you notice? He approves of me because I look serious, said Flora. A straight noise is a great help if one wishes to look serious. I do not wish to look serious, said Mrs. Smiling, coldly. There will be time enough to do that. I have to come and rescue you from some impossible relations living in some ungettable place because you can't bear it any longer. Have you told Charles about it? Good heavens, no. Charles is a relation. He might think I wanted to go live with him and Cousin Helen in Hertfordshire. and was angling for an invitation. Well, you could if you liked, said Charles, turning from his study of the glittering street gliding past the windows. There's a swing in the garden, and tobacco flowers in the summer, and probably Mother and I would quite like it if you did. Don't be silly, said Mrs. Smiling. Look, here we are. Did you get a table near the river, Becky? Becky had managed to do that. And when they were seated, facing the flowers and lights on their table, they could look down through the glass floor at the moving river and watch it between their slippers as they danced. Through the glass walls, they could see the barges going past, bearing their romantic red and green lights. Outside it had begun to rain, "'and the glass roof was soon trickling with silver. "'In the course of supper, Flora told Charles of her plan. "'He was silent at first, and she thought he was shocked. "'For though Charles had not a straight nose "'that might have been written of him, "'as Shelley wrote of himself in the preface to Julian and Matlow, "'Julian is rather serious. "'But at last, he said,' Looking amused. Well, if you get very sick of it, wherever you are, phone me and I'll come and rescue you in my plane. Have you a plane, Charles? I don't think an embryo a parson should have a plane. What breed is it? A twin Belisha bat. Its name is Speed Cop, too. But really, Charles, do you think a parson ought to have a plane? continued Flora who was in a foolish mood what has that to do with it said Charles calmly anyway you let me know and I will come along Flora promised that she would for she liked Charles and then they danced together and all four sat a long time over coffee and then it was three o'clock and they thought it time to go home Charles put Flora into her green coat, and Bicky, put Mrs. Smiling, into her black one. And soon, they were driving home through the rainy streets of Lambeth, where every house had windows alight with rose, orange or gold, behind which parties were going on, card or musical or merely frivolous, and a lit shop window displayed a single frock or a tang horse to the rain. There's the old diplomacy, said Mrs. Smiling, interestedly, as they passed that ludicrous box, with baskets of metal flowers tipping off the narrow sills of its windows, and music coming from its upper rooms. How glad I am that poor Todd left it to me. It does bring in such a lot of money. For Mrs. Smiling, like all people who have been disagreeably poor and have become deliciously rich had never grown used to her money and was always mentally turning it over in her hands and positively reveling in the thought of what a lot she had. And this delighted all of her friends who looked on with approval just as they would have looked upon a nice child with a toy. Charles and Bicky said goodnight at the door because Mrs. Smiling was too afraid of Sneller to ask them in for a last cocktail. And Flora muttered that it was absurd. But all the same, she felt rather subdued as the two wandered to bed up the narrow black carpeted staircase. Tomorrow I'll write my letter, said Flora, yawning with one hand on the slender white baluster. Good night, Mary. Mrs. Smiling said, Good night, darling. She added that tomorrow... Flora would have thought better of it. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.